everyone. Welcome to another episode of Picture Blurfigged with me, Naomi Harlan Bacchus Wilkerson. I'm so excited for another week, another episode of this amazing podcast that I just love doing. But I got to admit, guys, I think I'm starting to feel the effects of burnout. Like, legitimately, I haven't felt this way since like graduate school. And by the time I feel like, oh, I'm burned out, I think it's probably too late. But let me tell you, this past week for like, and it's, it's still kind of off and on today even but for two days like when i'm typing i am losing or like i have tingling sensation in my ring and pinking fingers so i think that's like an ulnar nerve compression or kind of like something in my but what's weird is that it's it's in both of my arms so then maybe it's probably something in my neck that's getting compressed up there and it kind of trickles down to both of my nerves in my hand but anyways like when i'm typing or doing computer work especially then it's just it's aggravated even more and so i've been like forced to stop working which i know horrible forced to stop working and rest but i guess like i've been working 12 to 13 hour days and my my hobbies are things like you know doing this podcast and doing other forms of research that are unrelated to my my day job but it's just i'm exhausted and a lot of my vacations so far have been a little stressful i'm not going to be honest because i've talked about on this podcast going on vacation with an eating disorder like your brain is kind of really challenged at this point like i think you have to be a certain amount of years into recovery before you're really comfortable just like impromptu yeah let's go do this like for me especially i'm very type a i've got to plan it all out like for me to just be mentally calm i guess and i have to know everything in advance so when things kind of get thrown that I'm I'm not used to it my anxiety kicks in and it, it's really terrible but so I haven't really had like a week to just do nothing I haven't had that you know week-long vacation to just de-plug and decompress when we did go to Florida and I talked about Harry Potter World which was absolutely fantastic I had so much fun it was so good to see family and play with my niece and and meet my new nephew I just loved it and I wouldn't trade that time at all but I was still checking email and and joining calls and, and all of that. And I don't think that's healthy for any person. So I'm always like going all the time. And I I don't think your body is meant to do that anymore. So I'm really learning to just listen to my body and I have to just shut the laptop and quit typing because my ulnar nerve is not letting me type. So I'm just really tired. And today, like I've always been working just these past weekends because catching up on on work and emails and projects where I haven't had time during the day because I'm either in meetings or or answering emails, they just take up so much time. So today I was just like told my husband, like, let's you know, like I think let's go do something downtown, you know, walk around. And I mean, we live just outside Washington, DC and it's beautiful. And we haven't been there in a while, just kind of like walking around and meandering, going to a bookstore. Those are my absolute favorite places to be and trying a new coffee shop. I love doing that stuff. So he said, yeah, and then let's just go. And we just got back and I, I feel a lot more relaxed already. And it was just really good for me mentally to be out there. And I was, my husband always like checks in, like, how are you, how are you feeling? You know, aside from, from stress and I hope you're not feeling guilty about not working, which that happens a lot too. But I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm proud of myself because I wore an outfit that I thought would be really, really cute on me. Um, I didn't, my eating disorder voice was telling me don't wear it, you know, because it's, it was a romper. It was a really, really cute romper. It had like a little belt. It was leopard um, shorts and sleeveless. So 
I just felt I'm, you know, I felt self-conscious at first, but I was like, I'm going to wear it. Like, I, I think it's an adorable romper and I'm going to wear it. So kind of stepped out of my comfort zone. I wore something other than, you know, my tendencies to wear something baggy because I just, like I said to my husband over lunch, I just feel ashamed or feel like I have to hide my body. And so I still see those remnants of that eating disorder voice trying to trickle in. And it's at the moments where I'm really stressed and really just vulnerable to those voices. You know, it's it's that dimmer. It's just the voice is on full blast rather than on just at a, a dimming setting. And I, I need to get it back to the dim setting so that I can just focus on things that that really matter in this in this world. And things like how many hours you clock in at work or how many emails you've left unread in your inbox, that stuff doesn't really dictate your worth or how good of an employee or colleague you are. Um, it's all about you know balance. So I'm still learning that. And, and I will say I did come home and then I tried a new double chocolate chip cookie recipe. I'm so excited. I haven't baked in a really long time. So um, I'm excited to have those. And my secret or is probably not a secret. A lot of people do this, but you chill the dough. Like I like to chill the dough overnight so that the next day it helps keep the cookies really fluffy because my problem up until now, like now I'm reading all the baking blogs is the cookies would always just go so flat. You know, you'd make the dough or whatever. And then you, you cook them and it looks good for like the first five minutes. And then they just like spread and then they go into each other and they're interconnected and just becomes a cookie cake essentially. So anyway, I could never like figure out why and chilling the dough and then cooking it the next day actually really, really helps. So I've mastered cookie recipes. I'm so excited to try this new one. So stay tuned next time to, to let you know how that goes. Um, but yeah, so that's a little bit about me and, and where I'm feeling mentally, because I think, you know, it's, it's a two way street. I try it and advise you all to really be gentle with yourselves and take care of yourselves this week in particular um, as if you all follow politics it was not a good week for women's health uh, issues and reproductive rights um, and we don't have to get into it that's not the focus of this podcast but if that forces you to kind of just take a step back and just you need a breather I totally get it um, it was kind of good for me to be outside and in the sunshine to just kind of not be glued to the TV or to doom scroll on Twitter, which is so easy to do. So, um, yeah, just a, just another reminder to, to, to take care of yourself where you can. All right. So for this episode of Picture Blurfect, I'm so excited to bring Dr. Blair Burnett. Um, she is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Minnesota School of Medicine. And I'm really excited to have her because she talks about and her research is on intuitive eating. Now, intuitive eating gets thrown around a lot. And we talk a little bit more about the history of how it came to be and then what how it can be implemented in terms of an eating disorder or disordered eating recovery system. Um, and what I really liked about our conversation is we really talked about how she's trying to research, you know, what are the barriers to access to intuitive eating, like looking more high level, not at just the individual level, but at the primary care level, like how can we develop a weight neutral type of care? And that was such a good point because if you go to the doctor, like everything is kind of based on your weight and everything is kind of centered on, there's so much, you step on the scale, right? When you go to the, the doctor's office, you don't have, it's not relevant to the thing you're going to go see, but sure, just step on a scale. What what for? So a weight neutral type of care is what she is striving to do and kind of collecting more data about intuitive eating, the challenges associated with it. 
um, which funding is one of them. Shocker. Um, and, and those kinds of things. So it was actually a really, really informative conversation because like she said, we drill it down to it was like, oh, you eat when you're hungry, you stop when you're full. And it's really, it's actually a more nuanced, complex kind of um, process. And I really appreciated her her research and her knowledge about this. And so I think you all will really, will really enjoy this episode. And then I think my favorite part was when we talked about a lot of the misinformation around it, um, just kind of how social media really just, you know, kind of switches things around and tells you what you should and should not be doing in terms of what you should be putting in your body. Don't eat this, eat that. And it's, it's, infuriating especially for people that are are working in the eating disorder field someone who may be struggling with an eating disorder so she talks a lot about that and and a lot of you know the myth busting that she has to do um, in terms of this topic eating eating disorders and intuitive eating so without further ado that's a lot of me blabbering isn't it oh my gosh you guys don't want to hear me talk this whole time so anyways <laughs> on to my interview with dr blair burnett <music> Let's get started. We're here with Dr. Blair Burnett on Picture Blurfix. So excited to have you. So just tell us a little bit about yourself, like your, your background, your current position, and what you're currently interested in in research. Right. Yeah. So I um, am a counseling psychologist by training. So I got my PhD at Virginia Commonwealth University last year um, in counseling psychology. And now I am a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Minnesota and the School for Pub of Public Health. Um, I work with Diane Newmark Steiner and the Project EAT team at the University of Minnesota. Um, although I have, a, I have several mentors and they're all wonderful and spread across um, several departments. Um, and I study, I mean, I would say I, I often say I study the social and cultural influences on the relationship people have with food and their body. Um, mm -hmm. In particular, I've done a lot of work around intuitive eating. I'm really interested and passionate about weight stigma and its intersections. Yeah. Um, yeah and just factors in our social lives, cultural culture uh, that influence how we feel about eating and, and body image. Yeah, that's just so super important too. Um, so what did your dissertation work focus on? Was it a completely separate topic or was it kind of similar? Yeah, my dissertation was uh, an intuitive eating intervention for college women who are engaging in the spectrum of disordered eating. Um, okay. So I, I started to get interested in intuitive eating in, in grad school because I was noticing that it seemed like different kinds of disordered eating or eating concerns were being treated drastically differently, depending mm -hmm. on what someone's symptoms were and what their body shape or size was. And when I was learning more about intuitive eating, I was like, that seems like appropriate for anyone um, with some caveats, but that seems like why are we treating these things with such drastically different approaches? And so I thought maybe it would have, promise as a transdiagnostic kind of secondary prevention, meaning like for those who don't know what that means, secondary prevention is like for someone who's exhibiting symptoms, but doesn't have a full threshold disorder. So kind of trying okay. to intervene after symptoms of onset and prevent progression to like a full threshold eating disorder. Um, ah. 
So recruited college women basically engaging in any form of disordered eating across the weight and shape spectrum. And I didn't actually survey weight, but um, women who identified as having diverse body shapes and sizes. And um, we did an eight week intuitive eating intervention. Um, We randomized women to either um, a group condition or guided self-help. Um, and it was eight weeks and then there was a two month follow-up. Um, and it was awesome. It was a, such a fun, great, rewarding experience. That's amazing. So that actually kind of answers the, my next question almost. Is that how you got started in eating disorder research is like you noticed this, this d- drastic difference in how people were treated in terms of like getting better for how they approach food or how did you get interested in eating disorders? Oh gosh. Um, so I got interested at like a super young age. So I'm, Mm. I grew up when I was like hitting puberty, I'm like 36. So as I was hitting puberty, it was like Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, flat stomachs. Like I, I I was at this really formative age and, um, Mm. And so I was really influenced by that. And then when I was in my mid-teens, I developed anorexia. And yeah. I really became passionate even as like a teenager. And at the time, like not having fully developed insight, I was like, these media messages are really harmful. Like yeah. I was really focused on the media side of it, of how influential that was and how it permeated everything, you know, then, you know, I'm getting that same pressure from my family and my friends are talking yeah. about it all the time. And it's really just like surrounding me. Um, and this was like before social media, right? Oh yeah. 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 Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, yeah. We didn't have yeah. that. We had instant messenger and stuff. Right. Know? Right. AIM. Yep. Yep. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. So we didn't have any of that till college. Um, and then I just got, I got really lucky actually, cause I was going to, I wanted to be a writer and then maybe one day I would have like some, I didn't know how things worked, but I was like, I'll have some media advocacy nonprofit or something one day. Um, yeah. But I went to Kenyon College in Ohio, and that is where Dr. Michael Levine, Dr. Linda Smolak, and Sarah Mernon, Dr. Sarah Mernon, were um, were working, and they all specialize in like media influence on body image, eating disorder prevention, wow. feminism, and and I uh, and so Linda Smolak was my faculty advisor, and so I I did like an independent study with her. I worked with Sarah Mernon, and then from there. Uh, kind of my trajectory was set towards that, um, towards that path. That's so cool. That's so cool. I, and I, I think it's, you know, you kind of like latched on to the, how influential media is and before even social media came into the picture. And now it's just a whole other, it's just gotten so bad. And it's like, I have to just distance myself sometimes from Instagram, especially just with all of those pictures and reels and stories and whatever they call them. It's just so much, but that's fascinating. So before we dig into like some of your research, I I noticed on your Twitter, speaking of social media, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that you are a T32 um, supported postdoctoral fellow. So you are supported by the T32 grant mechanism at the National Institute 
Institutes of Health. How exactly, because I work in policy right now, so how exactly was that application process like? Are there things that you think could be improved? Like, do you recommend other potential people that are thinking of, you know, going to do graduate studies and things like that to go pursue that route? Like, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so... Kind of how it works is the NIH has this funding mechanism, the T32, which are like training grants and different like researchers can apply for them. And so my mentor, Diane Newmark Steiner, she submitted an application to begin this training program called REACH, like research and eating activity, community health or something like that. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> and uh, and. So that so she got the funding to kind of bring this training program to the department. There's another one here in Minnesota, the eating disorder, like Midwest Regional T32 um, that has sites in Fargo, Minneapolis and Chicago. Um, And so you apply to like an like if there are openings at like a specific T32. So you go through um, through that. And so it's all different. Every single one, like Mm -hmm. for the T32 that I'm on, I submitted an application, I think maybe a writing sample. I can't remember now. Um, For the Midwest regional T32, you submit like a cover letter and you have and Mm -hmm. your CV and you have interviews. So it's different depending. I think it's a good, you know, the hard thing about the T32 and something that I rant about is just that the salaries are set by the NIH and they don't increase that much each year, especially considering what inflation has been doing. Um, And they don't vary based on where you live in the country. And so you can live somewhere where housing costs and everything are really low and make the exact same amount as if you live in San Francisco. So it just, the, the salary can be challenging. And like, I'm not technically an employee of the university of Minnesota. And so there are just some weird things about that. Like they've, they are the ones through who give me my money, but I'm technically not employed by them. So there's some weird stuff about how that works. Um, when you are at a university for, for us anyway. Um, So I think, but if you want like a research career and you're interested in, you know, moving on to a faculty position that's research oriented, I think that it's a good path. And I, and I hate that things work this way, but it looks good, uh, quote unquote, um, and kind of any involvement that you have in the NIH can be helpful eventually for getting funding. So. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And I've, I've thought about that too. The cost of living just varies so drastically from places. I went to grad school in Kentucky and I was able to make a living just with my university stipend. But like, I realized going to scientific conferences, people in New York or California were making like about the same as I was, you know, even not NIH funded or whatever. And universities themselves are not really doing any favors. So it's just a whole mess. But anyway, that's a whole other <laughs> podcast episode. Yeah, yeah, that is it's such a mess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've talked about how you focus on and research intuitive eating. So like, let's address what that is exactly. So can you explain what it is? What What is intuitive eating? Yeah. So intuitive eating is an eating approach that was originally conceptualized um, by two dietitians, uh, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch um, in the 90s. I think that it kind of came about because they were 
their dietitians and they were helping their clients. And initially they were in that model of like diets, weight loss, whatever. And they're like, mm. our, our clients are not like, quote unquote, succeeding. They keep being frustrated. This isn't working. And so they conceptualized this together and wrote some books um, on it. Uh, but it's basically, it's a 10 principle framework. I think that's something that people, people drill it down to kind of the hunger fullness diet, um, yeah. which just so missing the point of it. So it's 10 principles that really tap into eating, like stopping dieting, any non-medically necessary food rule or restriction that tells you how much, when, or what to eat again, non-medically necessary and not mm -hmm. like an ethical, you know, conscientious choice, such as, you know, like plant, like veganism or something like that. Um, right. eating, eating when eating according to your hunger cues. So increasing awareness of those and eating in response to those, um, increasing awareness of your fullness cues um, stopping eating when you're feeling full without rigidity, because there's a recognition that we're all going to sometimes eat in the absence of hunger. Sometimes we're going to eat past fullness. Sometimes we're going to get a little too hungry. And sometimes yeah. that's because intuitive eating really at its foundation is about self-care and taking care of yourself. And so sometimes the way to take care of yourself is if you know you need to eat in a structured way to maintain your eating disorder recovery, then eat in a structured yeah. way. If you know that you're going to have a long lag before you can eat again and you're not that hungry, eat now because you're taking care of yourself and thinking about your needs. So it's really about meeting your needs, um, accepting your genetic blueprint. So your natural body shape or size, um, exercising in ways that feel good in your body, um, eating foods that are satisfying that you enjoy, but that also feel good in your body again most of the time there's a lot of um there's a lot of flexibility and nuance in that and then coping with emotions without using maladaptive eating or exercise behaviors yeah. um with the understanding that like sometimes we do eat in response to emotions and moving towards that with intentionality um but having other tools in your toolbox um yeah so it's 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 pretty comprehensive um but it all comes back to this foundation of self-compassion and, and taking care of yourself and um, yeah, meeting your needs. I really like how you said it's not just about like eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full. Like there's a whole like framework in place that I didn't know about actually. And I think, you know, social media and, and what gets thrown around out there, it's drilled down into something that simple, but it's a lot more complex actually. Oh yeah. Um, so how does eat intuitive eating like relate to eating disorder and like recovery for eating disorders or disordered eating? I remember like I would have a, a structured meal plan and things to, to get on this better path and towards a healthy weight. And a lot of times I would finish my meal and then I recognized I'm actually still hungry and I would have to honor that hunger. Is that intuitive eating? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think that, I mean, that's certainly intuitive eating. Like if you are noticing like my needs aren't met um, mm -hmm. and what a powerful way to kind of push back against your eating disorder to say, I don't care that this is not a part of this like meal plan. I need right. my body needs this, you know, what's such a powerful um, way to strengthen that connection with your body. Um, I think I would really like to see more research around this, honestly, because there's only one study that looked to see 
if people who had eating disorders could learn to eat intuitively, because there's definitely a contingent out there and people who think intuitive eating and eating disorders don't mix. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Certainly no one, Evelyn, Elise, like the original creators, I don't think anyone who practices intuitive eating would ever say someone who is in, you know, in, in a serious bout of, you know, an eating disorder, you know, new in treatment or still struggling or whatever should start intuitive eating right away. I don't think anyone, like anyone who's refeeding, yeah. you know, renourishing themselves, there's structure and scaffolding that needs to happen. No question. Gotcha. Um, and it may look different for everyone. So again, I don't have good, there's not good data on this yet on the degree to which folks can regain awareness to those cues and eat in response to them. But I will say, I think that it will look different for everyone. I think, you know, some I've known folks who the way that they stay really solid in their recovery is they make sure that they stick to having their meals and snacks at at certain intervals Mm -hmm. and that what they eat, as long as it's balanced. And again, like they're, they're monitoring for themselves, like that they're eating like a variety of foods or whatever that it's up to them what they choose at those times. And so there's, there are components of intuitive eating in there, but also they're meeting their needs by knowing that's what they need to stay on top of their recovery. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's not aligned with intuitive eating. I think that's meeting your needs and being responsive to what your body needs. Um, You know, so I think, I think we need more data on that. I think it has a place. And even when I like worked in eating disorder treatment on internship with my clients that I was doing like CBTE or D, you know, D elements of DBT, like we were still including aspects of intuitive eating, even within the context of a meal plan and structure there for them. Um, So I think it has its place and it's going to vary. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know you you did that work as part of your dissertation among college women. Have we looked at it among like the uptake among men at all or other like demographics? And that is such an area of research that's underdeveloped Um, Mm. overwhelmingly, particularly the intervention research overwhelmingly is on women. Um, Yeah. You know, presumably cisgender women. There's, there are like studies, cross-sectional studies kind of looking at risk, protective factors, all of these things that include men in the sample, but it's really understudied. And I don't think that we know. I mean, I think that's a really important direction for research. And I'm doing a project right now where I'm interviewing young people about intuitive eating and like kind of the social determinants to try to get a sense of what are the what are the social barriers and and facilitators to intuitive eating and have been interviewing individuals of all genders. And it's been really interesting to, to hear the different perspectives. I think we just don't really know. Yeah. I bet there's so many directions that, that the field can go in. So I hope that 
they're more inclusive going forward, but at least it's recognized. Um, so we've done like a previously on this podcast, we've done a deep dive on the issue of food insecurity and how that can relate to like eating disorder pathology. So, and I know you look at it from this aspect of intuitive eating. So can you share the relationship between food insecurity, um, disordered eating and intuitive eating and maybe define, define it for those that may not know what those are? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to emphasize like food insecurity is not my area of expertise. And so I do encourage folks to look at some of the other work that's being done um, on that. One of my, um, one of the people who I work with in Project Eat, Vivian Hazard, has done a lot of work on, um, you know, eating disorders, disordered eating. Carolyn Becker also. um, Yeah. We had her on the podcast. She's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the Association with Disordered Eating. So I want to be careful to say I'm not an expert in this, but the reason that I was thinking about the association is we know that like fluctuations in food access are said to contribute to the link that we see between food insecurity and disordered eating. And, you know, if you think about it, when you have intermittent access or unreliable access to food, there are like neurological, psychological, um, behavioral effects of that. So, you know, and I think I nice to get really is in the context of like our bodies are trying to take care of us all the time. Like they're so smart and they want us to nourish ourselves. And so they're going, there can be an increase in like reward responsivity to food, um, reward related learning. So when food is available, it's really exciting. And again, your body wants you to eat. So foods there, it wants you to eat. Um, it increases your attentional biases to food cues so that you're noticing food so that you're paying attention to it. And so for folks, whether they are, you know, intentionally restricting their food or not, that these things can happen. And so when food is available, and again, that can be a way to meet your needs. Like if you don't know when you're going to have food again, eating a lot or eating past fullness might actually be really adaptive in a way that you're taking care of yourself. And so the theory behind intuitive eating was really that dietary restraint and restriction can maintain this disordered eating cycle. So you restrict, you restrict, you restrict, eventually your body takes over and it tries to meet your needs. And so you may eat these foods that you've been forbidding, forbidding yourself from having, and then you eat past fullness and that leads to this renewed attempt to restrict them again. And that can keep you in this cycle. And so I thought my guess is that folks who are experiencing food insecurity in an acute sense, it makes sense. Like if you don't have consistent access to food, then it is likely that you're not able to eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. That's may just not even be available to you. So in that kind of short-term sense, it makes sense, but long-term could also have impacts to, to the relationship that you develop with your hunger and fullness cues. Cause I've certainly had clients who experienced food insecurity and really struggled with, you know, eating past fullness and, and eating um, these foods that they wanted to restrict and come from that background where they didn't always have access to them. And so that's why I was interested to see, we hadn't seen it in the literature before to see if we could see any, you know, cross-sectional longitudinal associations there. Yeah. So that's in the works, right? You're still like working on that and, and gathering data. Yeah, it's it's under review, um, the initial paper okay. and then um, 
And then I'm doing like a smaller project right now. We'll try to see. Um, we used a brief intuitive eating measure for Project Data. It is a longitudinal population-based epidemiological study. And so most of our measures are pretty brief um, for that purpose. And so, you know, yeah. replicating it, trying to confirm and extend right. the findings with a smaller sample. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure as, like there's just this built-in systemic inequities involved with intuitive, not intuitive eating, um, food insecurity. So how do you reduce those inequities to ensure that everyone does have access and therefore the ability to kind of practice intuitive eating? And that's a loaded question. I'm aware. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a big question. I mean, I think that's something that I'm trying to learn and understand coming from a psychology background. You know, I would say a strength Mm -hmm. of counseling psychology is that it's very community focused, more strengths-based. But even so, we're often thinking about the individual. And that was one reason why I wanted to move towards a public health fellowship is when I was doing eating disorder treatment last year on internship, I felt like Every like I felt like I was struggling so much with my clients to move them forward because of all of these like forces in their social lives and their cultures. It was like every week we would make progress and then the next week we would get pushed back because a doctor said something super stigmatizing or they saw something about keto on social media or like whatever the case may be. And I just started to feel this responsibility to my clients to try to do something upstream, you know, like more top down. And so I would say, you know, I think it's super top down. Like I think the, the big issues here are like income inequality, like structural and systemic racism and these things like, and so I think until we make meaningful change at those levels, we're going to be really limited in, and how many people are able to eat intuitively, you know, like even when you do, like I was thinking about it earlier today when I was thinking about this question, like even when you do sometimes like a community engaged project, like I was involved in a couple of different projects in graduate school that were, you know, that I was assisting with as kind of a graduate research assistant. And like one of them, we did like cooking classes and gave cooking supplies to residents of like an under-resourced low-income neighborhood and you know we gave them recipes we gave them these supplies and we um taught them about different foods whatever we didn't change anything though about the context of their lives you know we didn't change anything about the neighborhood where they live and what is available to them anything about their like financial situations and all the other burdens they're experiencing and so it's just there's only so far we can get with that. And and I don't think that that means that it's not valuable. I think people need help now. People are struggling now, but I I just think if that's, if we get complacent at that individual level, we're not going to make much progress. So I, you know, the answer to your question is really hard. I'm trying to figure that out. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, like I have a project right now where I'm trying to, um, I just got a grant to basically, it's like a planning grant to thanks, um, to gather, kind of figure out what would be the barriers and facilitators, like what would be needed to know to pilot like a weight neutral 
um, approach to primary care for adults. So like, can we go into a clinic and pilot providing weight neutral care to patients and give Mm. some data that it's feasible, that it's acceptable, that it's safe, that it benefits patient outcomes and gains traction there. And so like, that's something that I, I feel really passionate about weight bias and healthcare. So I'm trying to figure out, well, how can we go higher up to reduce this, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So with intuitive eating, I think that's the point of some of my projects right now is trying to figure out what are these major barriers in, in people's mm-hmm. lives that are preventing access to it so that we can figure out how do we target it further upstream. And I think that's like, I've like I mentioned, I have the mixed methods project right now where I'm doing interviews and surveys with young people to try to gather more like richer data on it. Right. Right. That's so important. That's really, I'm interested to see like where it goes from here, but there's just a lot of work to do. So, and speaking of challenges associated with like studying all of this, what are some other challenges that you face in, in trying to study intuitive eating or, or white stigma or other things that you're working on? Uh, well, I mean, one of the big challenges I would say is funding. Um, Ugh, yeah. You know, I would, I think I'm still young in my career anyway. So I'm, I'm still, I don't want to say naive, but like, I'm still not jaded enough. Like I still am like, I want to make my work fundable. Like I absolutely yeah. am not going to do work just because it's fundable. Like I'm not going to do work that's not aligned with my values. Like I, I refuse. Um, yeah. But I, I have this naive belief that if I'm compelling enough in my grant applications and stuff, sure. that we'll get funding. So, but I do think like it's historically, we're not getting much funding for weight bias um, nope. research, intuitive eating. And so um, I think that will be a challenge that I'll keep trying. Um, yeah. And then I think the measurement of intuitive eating is really hard. Um you know, I think there's a push to get more objective measures of that. And I think that's a really challenging thing to try to measure. Standardize it. Yeah. Um, you know, we have we have the intuitive eating scale and working on mm-hmm. um, updating that currently. But, but yeah, so I think the measurement of intuitive eating and, you know, and then what people do with that and research and, um you know, sometimes research comes out about it and I'm like, you're missing the point, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, that's just always going to be. So I would say the measurement and the funding probably. Yeah, no, I get it. Actually, it's funny that you mentioned like not being jaded yet. Cause my, when I transitioned from research to science policy, my mentor was just like, just, you know, maintain your, your, your sweet personality and all of that. Just don't, you know, don't conform to the DC crowd. And I was like, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And then like, I saw him again, maybe like six months after I had like started my first position and, and he, he like went to my boss and was just like, what did you do to her? She's so jaded now. <laughs> I was like I am not jaded. I just kind of see it from the inside. I attend a lot of NIH meetings and I try and monitor all of like from the policy perspective. And it's like, you really see all of the gaps that are there. And it's just like, I know what it is on the ground at the research level. And now I see it from the policy perspective. I'm like, you just, you guys just don't get it yet. And it's, it can be frustrating. So I hear you on the funding side. I just, 
I wish it got to the level of like Alzheimer's funding, but that's asking for a lot. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. like, Alzheimer's is a lot. Um, so yeah, no, that's, that's just really interesting as far as like what the challenges are. Cause it's so different for every little subfield within eating disorders. And I just think that's so fascinating. So like there are parallels, but there's also a lot of differences. Yeah. 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 And I would say intuitive eating super misunderstood too. So that's just like another, yes. it's hard to capture the nuance and these like pithy little abstracts and things like that, you know? So. Yeah. And I mean, that leads right into my other question because that phrase intuitive eating gets thrown around so much, especially on social media. There's a lot of misinformation about it. So like how has social media influenced it? Does it contribute to the misinformation? Like, are there things that really just drive you up a wall? You're just like, this is so not what intuitive eating is. (laughs) Oh, yes. Um, Yes. I have a presentation I give about intuitive eating and I like kind of the first slides are like, when you hear intuitive eating, you might think this, and it's like all these pictures of like, you know, um, what intuitive eating would call play foods, but like colloquially, um, I, and I'm putting this in heavy quotations is like junk food. I do not agree with that term, Yeah, but like, you know, yeah. pizza, ice cream, candy, whatever, like a free for all. Like there are some people who think intuitive eating is all of that. And then, or it's like the hunger fullness diet and you'll see on, on, um, on social media. And so you'll see intuitive eating for weight loss, intuitive fasting, like bananas, things that are out there on social media and and are like super happy white women eating salads. Like it's, 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 it's often pictured as like one or the other, and it's like, so not, um, so there's a, there's an incredible community of intuitive eating, like dietitians, um, therapists, like different people who work in the field that's on social media. I think the issue is algorithms. That's like the thing that I've been thinking about a lot is it's like, if you are engaging with really appearance focused content or fitness focused content or whatever, you're going to get, you know, steered more and more and more down that people can say whatever they want about intuitive eating. Um, Or if you happen when in my dissertation, we gave, uh, we gave the women like a list of intuitive eating aligned, like social media accounts. um, And we encouraged them kind of every week we talked about it, but like clean up your feed, like unfollow things that aren't aligned with this or that are making you feel bad. Try some of these accounts, see if any of them speak to you to try to, steer them more towards that. Cause like some of the research on intuitive eating shows, like if you're in this, like accepting social environment, this is the acceptance model um, of intuitive eating, Tracy Tilka and, and some of her colleagues, it's easier to become an intuitive eater. If you feel this like unconditional acceptance by others and this like yeah. social support, you know? And so we're trying, like, it's really hard in this world that is like diet, 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 wait, 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 diet. to, to, to have a community and to try to cultivate that on social media. So I think, I think the problem is we're just not the loudest voices. We're not the, you know, the most present. Yeah. Before. So we're kind of always competing and in, in not a favorable way for us. I agree. And I like, cause I have an Instagram account for my dog and I actually like prefer that uh, Instagram account because it's mostly just dog content and cute animals and puppies. And I'm like, my mood is a lot better when I look at those videos than I do on like my other feed where it's just constantly like 
celebrities and things like that. And yeah, I should definitely clean that up. You're right. But I just have been sticking to the dog Instagram because it makes me feel better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. it's And it's really whatever like is working for you. I think we would tell, you know, the women in our study, like, it just takes practice and repetition. Like now yeah. I see things like, you know, I feel really sad when I see people whose appearance investment is clearly so high on social media where yeah. all of their feed is like pictures of them. And like, you know, in this, in this self-presentation way where it feels like appearance is everything that makes me feel sad now. And I, that wasn't always my situation. Like I don't see that anymore and feel like a sense of comparison or envy or anything. I'm yeah. just, there's so much more value to you. <laughs> you know, there's so much more and to life. You look there's like. so much more value to you, but it takes, I've had to think so in depth about these topics because of my dissertation and because of my work. Yeah. I have a lot of repetition with that, that, and I'm not immune or anything. It's not like I don't ever have like a bad body, sure. day, but like, but it takes practice and just over and over repeated yeah. exposure. So. Absolutely. So shifting gears a little bit, because one of your most recent papers really intrigued me um, was a systematic review of the sociodemographic variables of eating disorder psychotherapeutic treatment trials in the U.S. So tell us a little bit more about this review. Like, why did you do it? What did you find? Yeah, well, so when I was on internship, I was writing a paper and I think, um, and I was really trying to do as much research on internship as possible. Like a clinical psychology internship is like mostly clinical work and I love clinical work, but I also love research. Um, and so I was trying to figure out how to do as much research as possible. So I was going to do like a research rotation and I needed like yeah. a, I needed a, a project that made sense and fit into that. And I was, um, I was writing a paper or something and I wanted to cite that black women are included less often in eating disorder treatment trials. Like I needed a citation yeah. for that. And that seemed intuitive to me. I was like, Oh yeah, we know that. And then when I went to Wasn't try there. to find the paper, I was like, Oh, that has not been done. Um, there's like a paper on representation in prevention trials. And then maybe one comparing black and white women and binge eating trials, maybe. Oh, okay. Um, there's like two, but they're not, they're not expansive. Um, they're pretty specific. And so that kind of was the seed of the idea. And then I had this perfect opportunity all that, cause a systematic review is the most work. I, I think it rivals my dissertation for the amount of work that it was, A lot. Um, but it was so great. Like it was my, my favorite thing I've ever done, but, um, Aww. but I, yeah. So what we found was that, I mean, it's, it's not that, it's not that surprising and yet somehow it still is, but <laughs> as you would imagine, white cisgender women represented the overwhelming majority of participants across, we looked at it across diagnosis and then also but over the decades, um, starting from 1985 until 2020. Um, and so, you know, no, and we're, we're inferring that it was cisgender because no one reported, um, it, gender was only reported on a binary. Sometimes only one gender was reported. Um, like it might okay. say 95% female or something. And we're like, okay, well, mm. I guess you're leading, you're, you know, 
you're assuming yeah. we're going to think the 5% are male. Um, no one reported any transgender or gender diverse participants. Um, wow. There were really striking differences across diagnosis by, in my view, it was striking by um, race, ethnicity. So there was only one black participant included in anorexia trials or nine. There were nine black participants included in anorexia trials and they were all from one trial, one inpatient trial. Um, So black women and Latina um, women, and I think actually just black individuals and uh, Latinx individuals were underrepresented in anorexia trials and then more represented in any trial that was related to binge eating. Um, Still not overrepresented, but just there was a significant difference there. Whereas for Asian women, they were included more often in anorexia trials and less often in binge eating trials. Um, That was really striking. Um, Racial and ethnic data reporting. So in the 1980s, no one reported it at all. Um, Over time, more researchers were reporting full racial and ethnic data, but still even in the last decade, there was, I think it was 20% who didn't report. And I can't remember if it was 20% who reported just the percent white or the percent quote unquote minority. Um, So really incomplete reporting there. No one reported sexual orientation. Um, So I felt really passionate about that project because I hear the term evidence-based treatment thrown around all the time, like get evidence-based treatment, make sure you get evidence-based treatment. And like, yes, like definitely there are people and there are people who are treating eating disorders inappropriately. They, there are people in the community who don't have training, who should not be treating eating disorders like ethically who are doing harm. Right. But when we say evidence-based treatment, what do we mean? Who, for who? Like, who who do we have evidence for? And that was really, like, my concern is are enough people of diverse backgrounds included in these trials to actually say this is evidence-based for them? Because if they're not, we have to do something about that. Um, Because we may, these interventions that are considered evidence-based may or may not be culturally congruent. They may need, you know, refinement, adaptation, adaptation. and we can't know that if we don't know who was in our trials. Yeah. So would a better term be personalized treatment? So it's just catered or tailored to that individual? Well, I don't think we know. I mean, I don't think we know what's needed yet because we haven't had enough folks included in the treatments to know if they're effective across and between yeah. like within and between groups. And so we don't know if they, and we haven't had enough power to detect like meaningful, like everyone is doing kind of omnibus tests or like overall kind of like just looking across everyone, which can obscure meaningful between group or within group differences. And so we haven't even really had the statistical power to say, is this effect, is this treatment effective for black women? Is this treatment effective for gotcha. gay men? We don't, no. And so I don't think we can say that right now. I don't think yeah. it's necessarily, I mean, I think personalized treatment is probably a good idea in general, but, and I think Sherry Levinson and some of her colleagues mm-hmm. are doing work, um, the university of Louisville on some of those approaches, but um, we, we just know so 
So yeah, yeah. TBD. Yeah. There's just needs more data. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you mentioned in the paper, in the results and discussion section, that progress to improve this ethnic diversity has really stalled in the last decade. Um, so what are your recommendations to try and reverse that trend? Or do we just need to be more transparent and just more inclusive in general? Or are there other steps that we can take? Yeah, well, I'd say diversity across all sociodemographic factors is um, a concern. Um, definitely the progress around racial and ethnic representation seemed to stall in the last decade. I think, I think there are a few things that we noted and we, we have a lot of recommendations in the paper and they're, you know, they're all coming from the experts on this. Like I'm not an expert in, in recruitment strategies or, you know, some of these things that are relevant. So we really tried to pull from the people who are in the recommendations. So I want to emphasize that. Um, I'm not the authority on this, but some of the things that we noticed in the review were that, um, well, one of them was the most common method of recruitment was clinical referrals. Well, one, we know that individuals who don't fit the golden girl myth, so the myth that primarily thin white cisgender women, upper middle class, um, upper class, high class, whatever, um, are affected by eating disorders, like people who don't fit that stereotype are seeking treatment less often. They're being referred to treatment less often. Um, You know, individuals who are in larger bodies may not meet criteria for an eating disorder, may not be able to get treatment, are going to be more likely to be referred to weight loss treatment. And so if you're relying on clinical referrals, that's an inherently biased already. Um, like recruitment strategy. And so that pool is getting narrowed. Um, It may be totally appropriate. Like I did a college intervention, right? So I recruited on college campuses. And so I only had a college sample. So if you do have that kind of recruitment strategy, you need to be really careful and how you generalize your findings, what are the limitations that you notice? Like I would never say, oh, intuitive eating is effective for everyone because of the study that I did. Like we can't say that. Um, Right, right. So I think there are some really brilliant people who've published and reported on best practice recruitment approaches, but I think doing a better job with recruitment strategies, it's resource intensive. It's, you know, it's not necessarily as easy but if we want to do better like simply relying on some of these kind of convenience methods um are not going to be our best bet especially if some people are not likely to get treatment um yeah so i think that was one of the big things being really gathering full sociodemographic information and reporting it in full i think is so important so we understand who is in who who is represented in these trials um, so that we have a better sense for who these treatments are effective for. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of recommendations in the paper and I'm kind of, I'm trying to think, I think reporting and is so crucial. And I think recruitment is one of the most obvious ways. Yeah. Adequate power um, to detect even like within group. Um, 
significance. And so again, that goes back to recruitment and how are you recruiting your sample? And then acknowledging your limitations appropriately and generalizing your findings appropriately. That was something that we saw a big issue with is how people generalized their findings. Yeah, no, that definitely seems like the low hanging fruit. And I think that's, that's where they should go first. Um, And I hope it changes soon, but thanks to your paper, now that it's like actually out there and people can like recognize the issue for, for what it is. um, It's just so important. Okay. So I have one final question uh, before I let you go. Um, And thank you so much for your time today. I've learned so much. Um, It's really like illuminated this whole field of intuitive eating, which I've always been fascinated about, but never really didn't have, you know, the the authority to really understand it myself. So I definitely love talking to experts like you. So I always kind of close and ask a question because getting help for an eating disorder is really difficult in general and, and learning how to apply intuitive eating in recovery has probably its own challenges. So what is your advice to someone that, that's out there listening, could be their first episode, um, and they're just really afraid to take that first step towards recovery, or maybe they just are kind of struggling with intuitive eating through therapy and are just, they want to quit and stop and they're just don't want to move forward. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of like wanting to get help with an eating disorder or like disordered eating, I think taking a step forward. Like, I think one of the things that I've always thought is like really important is you don't have to want it with a hundred percent of your being. Yeah. The eating disorder, when you are struggling, the, the eating disorder voice is like loud. It's punishing. It's a louder like voice in your head. It's not going to be pleased. It's it, you're not failing. If you don't want it a hundred percent, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be completely motivated to start taking meaningful steps towards it. Um, and definitely like if you are seeking treatment, getting trying to find i mean you know that again that's a whole other podcast about the accessibility of treatment yes Um, but finding people who have expertise in it is so crucial because real real harm can be done um by folks who are not who are not super well versed in eating disorders um yeah so i i think one of the biggest things i always think is like you're not failing if you don't if you don't want it a hundred percent. You don't have to want it a hundred percent to, to move towards getting better. And it is not going to happen overnight. Um, yeah. Agreed. And in terms of intuitive eating, I mean, I think the complete like foundation of it is flexibility and um, self-compassion and self-care. And so if it's like, if it's not working for you, to eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. Maybe you don't know when you're hungry. You don't trust when you're full. You don't know what foods sound good. Like there's a lot of things that happen in your body when you've struggled with an eating disorder that make that all very hard. And then if you still are struggling with like eating disorder cognitions, that can get in there and kind of confuse it all. And so you don't have to start there. There are ways to be working towards intuitive eating. Yeah. And intuitive eating may look different for you than it looks for someone else. Like I mentioned, like right. knowing folks who eat on a schedule, cause that's what works for them. Um, but they eat foods that they enjoy. Um, yeah. 
you know, one of the ways that I like try to get my clients started, even when they're on a meal plan is like just noting how hungry they are and then how like full they are after a meal, just kind of noting their hunger fullness levels and starting to get to know the way their bodies are telling them these things. Cause it, it may not be like tummy hunger is what I call it, but it may be um, other signs your body's giving you. Maybe you're starting to get a little tired. Um, maybe you're getting a little foggy, although you're probably getting a little too hungry if you're getting there, but like our bodies speak to us in different ways. And so getting to know your own yeah. signals, even if you're eating kind of mechanically or you're, you're not hungry, you feel stuffed because your stomach is like adjusting to food again, or whatever the case may be like, intuitive eating just may look different for you and you, it may not, it may just be helpful to start to generate some awareness of those cues. Yeah, no, I, I really love that. And I love what you said about how you don't have to be a hundred percent ready because I think everyone, I don't think anybody is, you know, especially like no. I went through it and I was like, kind of like thrown into it. It's like, you have to get better. And I'm like, I didn't want to like, then I started realizing, okay, yeah, I, I don't want this life anymore, but I was never like, yep, I want to get rid of this eating disorder. Like it's, it's really hard. So I'm really glad that you framed it in that way. And that you emphasized how it, intuitive eating specifically is really different, just like recovery. It's really different yeah, yeah, for yeah. every person. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think if you wanted it a hundred percent, I just almost think like, then you wouldn't have like an eating disorder. Like, you know, yeah. like, there's something that you have to kind of uh, you know, I don't know how to put it, but like it, it just, it would be really hard to be at 100% at, at the beginning. Um, exactly. If those people are out there, that's awesome. I'm so happy for you. I just think that's like not as, not as common. <laughs> Agreed. Um, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. No, I love that. And I loved everything that, that we talked about today. I learned so much from you and really excited to see like, you know, like this new grant that you've got going and all of the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much again for, for all your hard work and, and for coming onto the podcast and sharing it with us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. That's a wrap on this week's episode of Picture Blurfic. Thanks so much again to Blair for, for joining the podcast and sharing all of the great work she's doing. I'm so excited to see what her career, where her career is going to take her. She's doing some incredible and very, very necessary work. Um, and as usual, you guys, I'm going to post all of the references that we talked, the papers and everything that we talked about of Blair's research um, in the episode. I'm going to put it in the episode description. So make sure you click those and read all of the other things that Blair is, is doing as far as her research research goes. Um, and you can always also follow us on social media. You can find the Twitter and Instagram, and you can of course always email, email me or message me on Twitter. I've gotten a lot of messages from people on Twitter uh, just recently, and I've been meeting a lot of you online and I just, I just love you all. I think you're so sweet and so supportive. And I just think this is such a good community to be in. Um, and I hope that this podcast, you do feel connected, not just with me, but with others out there that, that either may be struggling, who may be feeling like they they took that first step and they and they feel accomplished and ready to take on the world and I just wish all of you wherever you are in your journey that um, you feel at peace and you feel loved and appreciated because that is that is the purpose of this podcast and that is the purpose of life and I hope that you are able to see it because no matter what that scale says or what your clothing size says you know if you want to wear that romper wear the romper <laughs> like that's my life motto this this week um, wear the romper. 
Um, I need to get that on a t-shirt or something. <laughs> um, wear the romper and eat that cookie. Um, that's that's kind of where I'm at uh, mentally. Um, and I'm also working on, if you guys are interested in any of this, I have a couple of volunteers already. I would like to do a podcast where I have multiple people joining us. So far, it's just kind of been one-on-one. And what I'd like to do is have multiple people um, who have lived experience with eating disorders, whatever type it is, um, and wherever you are in your journey, I want to hear from you. And I want to have an honest chat amongst all of us um, so we can hear different perspectives. Um, whoever you are, however you identify, you're all welcome and you are all loved. And I want to, to provide a platform for you all to do that. So stay tuned for that. I, I think that's going to be in the works for the, in the next few months. So if you're interested, please feel free to email me or um, uh, message me on any kind of form of social media. So um, that's pretty much all I have. I hope, I hope you guys, um, if you're listening up until this way, you know, me just blabbering over here. I I really appreciate you listening to the podcast um, and I will see you guys next time.